Hello and welcome to the first episode of the new year of Damn Interesting Week. We are very excited to be back. We hope you are too. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. From giantfreakingrobot.com, we are proud to announce that a dinosaur embryo has been discovered in perfect condition. (gasps) Wait. Okay. Discovered is a little bit of a misnomer here. Apparently, it was sitting in storage for over 10 years in a museum storage room. (laughs) (laughs) We just didn't know. I mean, museums have basements just full Mm -hmm. of stuff that they haven't gotten through. Could you imagine the Marie Kondoing of a museum's storage (laughs) room? This embryo (laughs) does not bring joy. (laughs) But this one, baby Yingling, Mm -hmm. has sparked joy because the prevailing hypothesis suggests that this particular embryo may actually reveal a link between dinosaurs and birds. Now, we can't confirm this theory until we get some samples to research, but sources are speculating it belongs to the Ovaraptosaur family. But all of this has to do with a particular, I wanted to say asana, but I don't know (laughs) if that actually applies to embryonic eggs. But it's like a position, and it's called tucking. Now, tucking is an important evolutionary step not only for this dinosaur embryo, but all bird embryos. Mm. The head is oriented under the wings and tucked within the curled body, hence the name tucking. Now, the reason tucking is an important evolutionary step for this dinosaur embryo as well as bird embryos, our current understanding of tucking suggests that creatures who don't adopt this position during the development phase, they have a very slim chance of survival once they hatch. And if you look at the 3D rendering of the dinosaur embryo, you'd be hard pressed to think you're looking at a dinosaur and not a bird because it kind of looks like it's got a parrot beak. I mean, Mm. it looks bird-like to me, but it is worth noting that we're only dealing with a sample size of one, right? So not only will similarly completed dinosaur embryos need to be discovered and compared to current findings, but we'll also need samples from a bunch of these in order to span over a considerable length of time so that we can confirm that Yingling isn't just an evolutionary outlier, right? Mm-hmm. So that's just to be pretty easy to do, right? <laughs> They're just laying around all over the place. Hey, you know, have they checked the other storage room across the hall? Uh-huh. <laughs> Another wrinkle in this is that we don't fully understand why the dinosaur embryo never made it to birth. So that just raises a number of questions, right? We don't have a working sample of what it may have looked like after it was born. So we don't know if we're looking at a working genetic prototype. Or or a mutation that failed. Exactly. That's what they're getting at. Like, is this just Mm -hmm. sort of a one-off or is this actually part of the body of knowledge that will help us understand dinosaurs and evolution as a whole? But considering that it's been sitting in storage for a decade, there's no telling what other fossils are just waiting to be discovered. Well, and I was thinking about it, you know, it's like, how could you not know you have this? But if it's still fully inside the egg, 
All you right. know is you have a fossilized egg. You don't know what's inside until I guess you scan it properly or whatever. Yep. So we may have hundreds and hundreds of these fossilized dinosaur eggs where most of them are empty, but sometimes you get, you know, that pearl in the oyster, so to speak. So we oh, just yeah. got to get to scanning. Now, there was another article that I did not pick to cover for this, but it's about a town in India that has been worshipping these sacred stones. Turns out those are dinosaur eggs. So <laughs> there may be something mm. to that. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from popularmechanics.com. It's titled, What It's Like to Build a Castle from Scratch Using Only Medieval Construction Methods. Oh, Ooh. totally frustrating. A pain in the butt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the castle began with a series of happy accidents, and it sounds almost like a supersized episode of the British dream home show Grand Designs, which <laughs> coincidentally began in 1999, just two years after builders broke ground in Guadalajara as well. Michel Guyot is described by the press as a French entrepreneur, but he is now famous for his castle investments. He first invested at just age 29 or 30 with his literal frere Jacques when they <laughs> bought an empty French chateau to fix up in 1979. In 1995, a team of archaeologists told Guyot that the outer walls of the chateau were built around a medieval castle whose original walls were intact. Guyot and two collaborators, including Marilyn Martin, who has stayed in a hands-on leadership job with the project since its inception, decided they should plan and build a brand new castle as a way to avoid being hemmed in by existing ruins. What? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, so instead of being hemmed in by existing ruins, they decided to create future ruins. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because, uh, you know, time just has to keep marching and nothing ever repeats. So mm-hmm. Guyot and company decided to build the new castle in the style used in the 13th century, including a historically accurate design from an expert architect. In a piece on NPR in October, workers at Guadalon estimated that the rest of their work already 26 years in could take up to 20 more years. Wow. That's partly because the goal is not expediency. The site is considered a working archaeology project. By doing this labor the traditional way, workers are helping those who study medieval castles or castellologists (laughs) to understand more about how they were really built in history. And as would have happened in medieval times, the long building process has become the longest portion of some workers' careers. Wow. And only one person got paid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, potentially. I mean, imagine, though, having just like castle on your CV. Like, that's it. Just, right, right. I built this castle. <laughs> so here's a glimpse at some of the building materials and technologies in use at Guadalajara and how they stack up against modern construction methods. Inside a medieval stone structure like Guadalajara, there's often an extensive and detailed scaffolding of wood to support the placement of masonry. Wood was also used to frame houses at the time and at Guadalajara. These are filled in using wattle and daub. This method dates back to the Neolithic period, and it involves weaving slats into rough panels that are daubed or plastered with whatever mixture was available. This could be mud, clay, or plaster, and was bulked with fillers like straw. Proponents of this technique today say these structures can easily last 500 years or more. It's true that wood does not last the simple test of time as well as stone, but the goal at Guadalajara is not to make perfect ruins for the far future, it's to build a working castle with the same values that contemporary builders would have used. That includes for roofs, which, as the 2019 Notre Dame Cathedral fire showed, were often made of wood covered in a layer of waterproof material. Wood can save a great deal of weight, but there are always pros and cons. As for the paints and dyes, in medieval times, interior paints were often made using egg yolk and a thinning extender like vinegar. It's basically like a colorful mayonnaise for your wall. Yeah, like salad dressing. Yeah. (laughs) Probably not as edible or tasty, but who knows? (laughs) 
The pigments found around Guadalon, according to the painter Claire Piot, include ochres, some clays, some soils, charcoal, lime, things like that, and we can make 15 colors. Other pigments were available at the time, but medieval European castles often relied on red and yellow ochre to make their palettes, as people have done since the very earliest surviving art from hundreds of thousands of years ago. So, the Guadalon site is unusual for employing so many workers who are trained or apprenticing in the traditional medieval methods, but there are people all over Europe who work in preservation and education around historical sites. The communication lead for the project told NPR that many involved in rebuilding Notre Dame Cathedral called to consult with Guadalon's talented medieval workers. Hmm. In 2006, Associated Press reporter Angela Doland wrote, Some of the walls are already covered with moss, a reminder that the project is slow going. If all goes well, the castle will be finished by 2023. After that, the craftsmen plan to build an abbey, then a village. That was 17 years ago, of course. <laughs> in October, the builders told NPR's Eleanor Beardsley that it could be 15, even 20 more years before the oh, wow. castle is finished. Usually you get just two weeks. It's the, That's the contractor thing. It'll be ready <laughs> yeah. in two weeks. Right, right. Just two more weeks. Just keep extending it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it does end by saying there are a couple nice things, a couple differences, such as the workers wear steel-toed boots, <laughs> and the site is outfitted with thinly veiled safety equipment all around. Yeah. No, you're not going to... OSHA's not going to let them completely get away. I mean, I guess it's in the UK that whatever their equivalent of OSHA is. But yeah. yeah. You know, USHA. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. This comes from Science Alert. Good news. Scientists destroy 99% of cancer cells <gasps> in the lab using vibrating molecules. Oh, what? Whoa. Well, we'll be careful with this. So okay. scientists have discovered a new way to destroy cancer cells. They do this by stimulating aminocyanide molecules with near-infrared light, causing hmm. them to vibrate in sync, which is enough to break apart the membranes of cancer cells. Like when somebody's bass is rattling their car apart. Right, <laughs> right. The same philosophy there. So aminocyanine molecules are already used in bioimaging as synthetic dyes. And I looked it up. I couldn't find any sort of after effects from it. Mm. No, like you get cancer from, from aminocyanide the, yeah. <laughs> injection. Yeah. So relatively safe. They stay stable in water and are very good at attaching themselves to the outside of cells. It's kind of their thing. The research team from Rice University, Texas A&M, and the University of Texas say this new approach is a marked improvement over another kind of cancer-killing molecular machine. So calling it a new way to destroy cancer cells may have been a bit hyperbolic. It's an improvement. Okay. The previously developed machines are called Ferenga-type motors, which could also break the structures of problematic cells. These are not to be confused with Ferengi-type motors, <laughs> which are cheap and will likely break down quickly. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, Ivan. According to chemist James Tour from Rice, it's a whole new generation of molecular machines that we call molecular jackhammers. They are more than one million times faster in their mechanical motion than the former Ferenga-type motors. Wow. And they can be activated with near-infrared light rather than invisible light. The use of near-infrared light is important here because it can enable scientists to get deeper into the body. So cancer in bones and organs could potentially be treated without needing surgery to get to the cancer growth, hmm. which is huge. Yeah. Hopefully they can get to testing on humans soon, because in tests on cultured lab-grown cancer cells, 
The molecular jackhammer method scored a 99% hit rate Gosh, at destroying the cells. That's insane. Be careful not to get your hopes up too much because the approach was also tested on mice with melanoma tumors and half of the animals became cancer-free. That's still still a huge improvement without chemo or cutting. I'd be concerned that they'd get on non-tumor cells. Like, how do they know which one? I mean, you're just going to shake your whole body apart. Yeah, I'm sure they have some specifics on that. And again, why maybe it was only 50%. For the melanoma tumors. Half of them were cancer-free. The other half were dead. (laughs) Yeah, My guess is more specific than chemotherapy. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, it's not like we have a lot of specific cancer treatments to begin with. We're all just Mm -hmm. throwing horrible things into our body and hoping we survive it. (laughs) But if we could have people who are suffering put into like Mm -hmm. a dance floor where they are all like grooving and healing at the same time, how cool would that be? With their amino cyanide getting their infrared light? Well, I mean, you know... Mm -hmm. Pulsing music, pulsing treatment. There's got to be some crossover potential. I, yeah, I think it's I think it's a much faster vibration. Hey, just yeah, because yeah, that yeah, genre yeah. hasn't hit our eardrums yet doesn't mean it's not going <laughs> to rock. That's right. That's true. Silent Kids music today, is the next right. wave. <laughs> <laughs> next link. Next link. All right. Well, we're going to start with another weird one from me, or I should say from The Guardian. It's called Many Prehistoric Handprints Show a Finger Missing. What if this was not accidental? Wait, of human hands? Yes. Oh, yes. Human handprints, but not all the fingers. Hmm. So first off, if you're not aware, there's a particular style of Paleolithic cave painting that's been found in several different sites across Europe, including the Maltra Vieso and Fuente del Trucho caves in Spain and the Gargas and Cosker caves in France. And these paintings all feature overlapping handprints. And notably, a lot of these hands are missing fingers, which is not entirely surprising given the difficulty of life 25,000 years ago, but it is still more than you might expect to see from general injuries. And, you know, you might say, well, the paint's very old, some of it maybe wore away, but in addition to standard handprints, where the pigment was painted directly onto the palm, there are also stencils, where the hand was held up to the cave wall and then something was splattered around it to leave a shadow. So in those cases, there is no mistaking the fact that these hands really were missing one or more joints, often starting from the pinky fingers and moving inward. So a few years back, archaeologist Mark Collard of Simon Fraser University in Vancouver proposed a theory that these amputations were deliberate. He said these ancient cave people were cutting off their fingers as part of a religious ritual. And all his colleagues at the time were like, yeah, that's ridiculous. Because aside from the fact that life was just more dangerous back then, you know, frostbite had to be pretty common, small injuries could get infected. But it's also reasonable to assume that losing one or more fingers would have a devastating effect on Mm -hmm. your ability to survive in that era. So you certainly wouldn't go around doing it for fun. And everybody basically was like, you're dumb. They were just injured. Go away. (laughs) But Collard was convinced he was right. And now, along with Ph.D. student Brea McCauley, he has gathered and published a much larger paper with more evidence to back his theory. They identified more than 100 instances of semi-modern, unrelated cultures who have all engaged in ritualistic finger amputation, including one tribe of people who are still doing it today. (gasps) What? Yeah. So that case in particular is the Danny people of the New Guinea Highlands, where women especially will have a finger cut off as a sign of grieving following the death of a loved one, usually a daughter or son. And this was the first point in the article where I was thinking, well, like, okay, that actually kind of makes sense. You know, I'm sort of automatically skeptical anytime an archaeologist slaps on this generic label of religious purposes for anything (laughs) we can't explain. But the idea of a parent wanting to indicate this kind of permanent loss in their life 
I can buy that as a, a possibility psychologically, right? Mm-hmm. Wait, but didn't most children die? Wouldn't they be missing <laughs> all of their fingers? You know, maybe they're only doing it for children they liked. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but so Collard said they found relatively modern sites in Africa, Australia, North America, and Asia that all contain evidence of deliberate finger amputation. Quote, This practice was clearly invented independently multiple times, and in particular by hunter-gatherer societies, so it is entirely possible that the groups at Gargas and the other caves engaged in the practice as well. He also pointed to numerous other types of suffering rituals throughout history, including firewalking, face-piercing, and even putting hooks through skin so a person can drag heavy chains behind them. Like, we're apparently super into BDSM on a whole other level throughout time. (laughs) And as far as the question of why humans do any of this stuff, Collard notes that studies have shown people become more likely to cooperate with other group members after going through painful experiences and rituals together. Ah, trauma bonding. Yeah. So maybe it's not an accident, he said, that the tribes who advanced enough to do cave art were also the ones who were super bonded together by these practices. Mm. And, you know, honestly, maybe that's what's wrong with modern society. You know, we're so polarized, we're not cutting off enough fingers. Oh, yeah. We need to do more trauma bonding. You're going to say that first day of 2024? Really? (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I'm just trying to kick the year off right. I'm saying let's look for solutions. (laughs) Fair enough. Next link. Next Next link. link. Okay. Discover.com has a very interesting overview about sleep paralysis. (gasps) Have any of you ever suffered from this? Yep. I have something kind of similar. It's not like I'll sometimes go through this cycle of like, I know I'm asleep. I need to wake up. And I feel like I've woken up and I start going through like my morning routine. And then I realize, no, wait, I'm still asleep. And I'll try <laughs> mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. And like six or seven times in a row, I'll be like, OK, I'm this time I'm really getting up and brushing my teeth or whatever. And then I'm still not. <laughs> and it's very, very frustrating. Yeah. That liminal space is kind of the gray that we're going to be focusing on because boy, can a whole lot go haywire there. But yeah, it's a little scary. <laughs> it, it's a lot scary. And it's not alone in the kind of disorders that we're going to kind of dive into here. But it affects about 8% of the general population. And it kind of goes a little something like this. You're waking up from sleep, you're opening your eyes, and you realize you can't move or speak. That Mm. alone overwhelms you with the terrifying sensation of being paralyzed. So sleep paralysis falls into a group of disruptive sleep-related disorders. These are called parasomnias. These episodes can last up to several minutes. And part of what makes it so scary is that people are completely aware of what's happening to them and their Mm -hmm. inability to do anything about it. It occurs during the REM phase of sleep, which is our deepest phase of sleep. And when we're in REM, our motor neurons are inhibited. So our brain is intentionally paralyzing the body when we are in this state. And this is a protective measure to keep the body from acting out the intense dreams that occur during this Mm. phase of sleep. Think of your dog when they're in that super twitchy eye phase and they Mm -hmm. kind of run in their sleep. I mean, you've seen the videos like some actually take off running. Yeah. Well, Mike Birbiglia has got a whole thing of it. He's like a violent sleepwalker. And he got up, walked out of his hotel room and jumped out a second story window all while sleepwalking. (laughs) Like it's mm-hmm. yeah, it yeah. can it can mess you up if your body can move while you're dreaming. Exactly. So, you know, it sounds scary to to be paralyzed while you're in REM, but it really is our brain saying, Hey, this is for it's your better. own protection. Like we're doing <laughs> yeah. this as a favor to you, right? 
And because most of us are usually fully asleep during this REM phase, we usually don't even notice that we have no motor functions. We're not disturbed by the paralysis that is very normal for this kind of sequence. Now, research has revealed that a few conditions have been linked to sleep paralysis. If you have conditions like narcolepsy, panic disorder, <laughs> sleep factors like non-restorative sleep, or if you have things like sleep apnea, nightmares, nighttime leg cramps, changes in your sleeping schedule, that can also contribute. If you've experienced high levels of stress or traumatic experiences, that can also significantly mm. increase the likelihood of experiencing sleep paralysis. Some medications can even cause mm -hmm. sleep paralysis, including SSRIs, which are fairly common, tricyclic antidepressants, anticholinesterase inhibitors, beta blockers, even some sleep medications, because they will yep. actually cause sleep paralysis due to their effects on REM sleep in that very fragile state. So that's where I think most of mine have come from a near Benadryl overdoses. Yeah, <laughs> I could see that because, yeah, it's definitely messing with how you're actually physically feeling, whether or not you can fall asleep. Estimates suggest that about 75% of sleep paralysis involves hallucinations. Mm. And they typically fall into three rough categories. You could have intruder hallucinations. And this occurs when people feel like there's a dangerous presence or a being in the room. You could have maybe chest pressure hallucinations. Or you could even have vestibular motor or VM hallucinations. These can include out-of-body sensations or even feelings of movement like flying. Now, hmm. intruder and chest pressure hallucinations, sometimes these are even referred to as physical assault hallucinations. These are highly correlated with fear and historically mistaken as having supernatural origins. But VM, those vestibular motor hallucinations, those have been associated with sensations of bliss as well as erotic feelings. Right. Oh, I didn't get those. Those are yeah. not the kind I got. Love <laughs> on a cool. roller coaster, baby. Like up and down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Now, there is a difference between sleep paralysis and night terrors. They're often confused, mm. and they are both frightening parasomnias, but they are two distinct conditions. So sleep paralysis is usually when a person has their eyes open, and this usually occurs often near morning, and a person can typically be easily awakened from this state. But a night terror, whew, they will make sounds. They might even scream during the event. It commonly occurs in the early part of sleep. So this is a non-REM state and it typically mm. is difficult to wake the person. Okay, so if you find yourself in an episode of sleep paralysis, one study showed that meditation and relaxation helped reduce episodes. I know, meditation, ugh, big eye roll. But hey, mm. start of the year, maybe make it a resolution, right? Because right. participants used the techniques at home and they kept a daily journal of the symptoms. Overall, according to this study, results showed a 50% reduction in the number of days that subjects experience sleep paralysis and a 54% reduction in the total number of episodes. Even hallucinations were reduced by 34%. So this is measurable, right? Hmm. Now, if you do suffer from sleep paralysis and you want to try to prevent it, try side sleeping. Apparently, back sleeping is also correlated with a high instance of sleep paralysis. Hmm. You also want to try to get a handle as best you can on sleep schedules, stress, check out your medications, make sure you don't have something like narcolepsy, which could be contributing to this. And if all else fails... 
just get ready to fight the demon. Like <laughs> <laughs> it, it is terrifying, though. I mean, I get them occasionally. It's when I'm laying face down, though, hmm. and I can't move my body. And what I will end up doing, I do freak out for about 15, 30 seconds. feels like longer. But then I just try to move an index finger. Yep. And then once I can move that index finger, I can break it and then I'm up. Yeah, because it's the control, right? It's the lack of control that really freaks everybody the most out. And once you're able to reestablish some control, it takes mm-hmm. that all back down. Mm-hmm. Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from sciencealert.com. It's titled Intermittent Fasting Seems to Result in Dynamic Changes to the Human Brain. Ooh. Hmm. Good or bad? Uh, <laughs> Just dynamic. <laughs> <laughs> Just dynamic. <laughs> yeah. So researchers from China studied 25 volunteers classed as obese over a period of 62 days, during which they took part in an intermittent energy restriction or IER program, a regime that involves careful control of calorie intake and fasting on some days. Not only did the participants in the study lose weight, 7.6 kilos or 7.8% of their body weight on average, there was also evidence of shifts in the activity of obesity-related regions of the brain and in the makeup of gut bacteria. Right now, it's not clear what causes these changes or whether the gut is influencing the brain or vice versa, but we do know that the gut and the brain are closely linked, so treating certain regions of the brain could be a way to control food intake. Medical scientist Xiaoning Wang from the State Clinic Center for Geriatrics in China says, The gut microbiome is thought to communicate with the brain in a complex two-directional way, where the microbiome produces neurotransmitters and neurotoxins which access the brain through nerves and the blood circulation. In return, the brain controls eating behavior while nutrients from our diet change the composition of the gut microbiome. So that's where this article ends, but I wanted to dig into some of the details about what intermittent fasting actually looks like according to the study that they did. Mm -hmm. And basically, it is linked in this article if you decide to look it up. A time-restricted eating group were required to consume all their calories between noon and 8 p.m. And the study found that restricting the time during which you can eat and restricting the number of calories were equally effective for losing weight. Well, it's good to know that skipping breakfast has been for my own health and not because I'm lazy. Like, (laughs) I've been doing it on purpose, y'all. Well, and intermittent fasting has a lot of benefits for, I think, autophagy is what it's called, where basically at a certain point, and this is more like longer term where you're doing like 24, even 36 hour fasts, you basically prompt the body to start kind of consuming itself. But it starts with all the like dead and garbage cells first. So it's almost Mm -hmm. like a defrag on a physical level. Mm. I would hope the same applies to the brain. But maybe that's just because I probably have some dead brain cells from my 20s. I need to get out. (laughs) We've all got a few. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it does not to go on too much. But like the gut microbiome axis with the brain is huge. It's massive. So if you're interested in this topic, I highly recommend uh, Google. (laughs) Not TikTok? Are you sure? That's right. Maybe start with this article. Don't go randomly Googling. Yes. You know, Google from reputable sources. There's a lot of info about it now. Right, right, right. Next link. Next Next link. link. This is from creativeblock.com with a Q, creative block. (laughs) AI finally solves the mystery behind Renaissance painting, which is the first time (laughs) I've heard AI and art in the same sentence and have it be good news. Yay. Yay. I genuinely thought you were going to say Renaissance festivals. (laughs) I don't know why. (laughs) AI has solved this problem. Anyway, go ahead. (laughs) So... An algorithm developed in Bradford may have solved the mystery behind a masterpiece of art at Madrid's Prado Gallery. For centuries, there's been debate around the Madonna della Rosa, 
was it really painted by Raphael? Mm. AI seems to have found the answer. It was done by Shredder. Sorry, oh. that's the last nerd joke. <laughs> the Madonna Della Rosa depicts Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus, and young John the Baptist. Because we all remember the story of baby Jesus and John hanging out when they were kids. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. But doubt was cast on whether Raphael was the artist behind it as long ago as the 19th century. Some art historians thought that the figure of Joseph in particular didn't look like the work of the great Renaissance painter. And others thought the section at the bottom with the rose was also painted by somebody else. The Prado itself has continued to attribute the painting to Raphael for financial reasons, mm -hmm. of course. But now an AI algorithm appears to justify its stance, at least for the most part. Developed <laughs> by Professor Hassan Ugal at the University of Bradford, the AI analysis suggests that most of the painting was the work of Raphael, most likely including the questioned lower portion. However, the face of Joseph appears to have been painted by a different artist. Huh. Ugale says the algorithm was trained on 49 uncontested works by Raphael and can recognize authentic pieces to an accuracy of 98%. Hmm. Wow. He said the model learns about the painting in an almost microscopic way, studying the color palette, hues, brushstrokes, and tonal values used by Raphael. Initial testing was inconclusive, finding a 60% chance that the painting was Raphael's work. But a more detailed section-by-section -section analysis found that it was Joseph's face that was causing the doubt. Another artist likely finished the face or altered it for some reason. By the way, this was more common than most people think. I remember hearing a story of Michelangelo's fresca, The Last Judgment that had fig leaves painted by different <laughs> ah. artists because there were too many nudes. Ugail has released the code for his algorithm, so it's available to the public to replicate. So get ready for the Antiques Roadshow AI division, I guess, will be coming up next. It definitely could be a help, though. I could see how this could help with a lot of fakes. Yeah, disputed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, pattern recognition is what they're good at. I don't think anybody really has a problem. It's only when the AI is like, well, now I can make a Raphael and I'm going to claim that it's 100% legit and you're not going to know. <laughs> and you're not going to know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that's the world we live in in 2024. Yay. That's right. Because it is 2024 and we are glad to be back. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Some of the articles we did not have a chance to get to today include The Mystery of the Medieval Fighting Snails, Reindeer Can Sleep and Chew Their Cud at the Same Time, and Alabama Woman with Two Uteruses Gives Birth Twice in Two Days. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, and for the whole year, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. <laughs>